1: Welcome back to Music Tectonics, where we go beneath the surface of music and tech. I'm your host, Dimitri Vitsa. I'm also the CEO and founder of Rock, Paper, Scissors, a PR firm that specializes in music technology. And before we get to our awesome guest today, you may have heard that we have now launched and announced that the Music Tectonics Conference is going online for 2020. It's October 27th through 28th, 2020. Last year in 2019, we launched the conference in LA. We went to LA specifically because of the convergence of music and technology, record labels, sync and and TV and film, gaming, social media, so much cool stuff happening in LA and not many uh, events like Music Tectonics there. But this year we're going global because we have to go online. Uh, We wanted everybody to be safe and it means we could probably grow the event and have more Uh, regional diversity um, and lots of interesting players who would have liked to have been to LA but maybe couldn't have traveled. So we're really excited. Go to musictectonics.com to find out about who's going to be there and how you can register. It's a a super affordable badge of $59. So that's another advantage of it being remote. We've got some speakers like Scott Cohen, the chief innovation officer for Warner Music Group. We've got the great music tech journalist Sherry Hu. Um, We've got the head of music from Roblox. We've got some cool mixed reality folks coming in sync folks lots of great speakers and one thing we're working really hard on this year is we've come up with some technology that makes networking not only easy but fun um, we've come up with something that we think you'll have a blast doing. we've tested it out with our own music tectonics and rock paper scissors team and it's actually making our meetings a blast um, you'll get a chance to meet one on one with folks and get some business done at the same time. So go to musictectonics.com and check out all the conference info. And let's get to our episode this week. Um, I've brought on Rashawn Blumberg, uh, who is an artist manager with Brickwall Management. He also has a company called 10X Management, where he's translated a lot of what he does with musicians and producers into the world of tech talent. Rashawn, how are you doing? I'm wonderful. Thank you. How are you? I'm doing great. How's New York today?
0: New York is about to brace for um, a brush with tropical storm Isaiah. Uh, At some point today, it's going to start hitting. Uh, There were some pre-rains last
1: night that were pretty hard and brutal. So uh, I don't know. It'll be interesting. We'll see. It's nonstop. We've got pandemics and recessions and storms uh, and... uh, man, the music industry is is doing its best, right?
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, 2020 is like the greatest hits of disasters, so I can't imagine what we have
1: in store for the rest of the year. Yeah. You know, let's jump into it. What's been the biggest impact of COVID-19 uh, in terms of the effects on you as an artist manager?
0: I mean, you know, it's, it really starts with this feeling of helplessness and seeing people whom I care about both directly and indirectly and who, who I work with directly and indirectly, um, suffering from, you know, a complete shutdown of everything touring related. Um, not everything music related, but everything touring related. I mean, to see people whose, you know, livelihood was thriving up until about the middle of March, uh, essentially become unemployed and unemployable for God knows how long that this is going to be in, in, you know, in the system. Um, that's been the toughest part, um, you know. From a rubber meets the road standpoint, obviously all touring is off. We've had to sort of reconfigure the way that we um, approach the creation of art, the releasing of art, the release of the experience of being a part of art. Um, all of that has to be re- has had to have been reimagined um, in a lot of different ways, and. I do think there are some silver linings here, which we can sort of get into down the road, but the the real pain point for me is just watching people suffering, um, whether it's booking agents and we've seen agency after agency announce different layoffs and furloughs. Um, You know, I don't love huge conglomerates like Live Nation and Ticketmaster fundamentally, but you know, it it breaks my heart to see venues beginning to close and uh, people being furloughed from those kinds of companies um musicians who are you know road dog players and in, in in bands and
1: you know it's it's really disheartening to see yeah that's i mean that there you go honest analysis of what's going on can i ask you um i've always assumed since physical has been declining and digital has been increasing that the 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 kind of the income streams for managed artists and managers is very tipped towards live music. Do you, is is that true? And, and are you able to talk about sort of what general, what percentage of your artist base um, is for live versus recorded music in terms of revenue? Yeah. I mean,
0: it's, it's definitely a very nuanced question. And I think that there are so many different scenarios where um, that proportion of touring versus other revenues can be um, heavily pronounced or not very pronounced. Hmm. Um, So I'll talk about a couple of different kinds of concepts that I'm thinking of as it relates to the question. First of all, I think that that that's always been the case, even before streaming, you know, with CD sales and before that cassettes and and vinyl, um, you still had a large chunk of an artist's revenue coming from touring. Uh, And touring is also the best way to ensure that an artist has a longer career and also has the most control over their career. Uh, once you sign a record deal, you're sort of, um, you know, you're abdicating your authority and rights over the masters that you create, but touring, you can do anytime you can decide to tour all year long. If you're capable of doing that from, from a fan base standpoint or tour infrequently. Um, Or like Morrissey, you can tour and cancel all the dates every time. But, you know, so it it really depends on the artist. Um, You know, we have a couple of different types of artists that that we work with currently and over the years. Some have had massive hits in their career and are still, you know, those hits are kind of evergreen. And so they throw off a fair amount of money from the master and publishing side. Mm -hmm. Um, So touring for an artist like that is really about you know, a personal desire to be out on the road or not be out on the road. So in that case, it it can really be, you know, sometimes an even split 50 50 between touring and uh, royalties from from recorded music. It can skew even heavier towards the recorded music side um, from a financial split. So it sort of depends on the type of artist you are and the type of artist you're working with. But the type of artist that we're attracted to, that I'm attracted to in general, is an artist who has the ability to tour who has a fan base that is interested in them touring um, because it is much easier to market to an artist's fan base if they're active and they're interested in in seeing live music. It's much more difficult to make a connection between an artist who has maybe massive streaming numbers, but not necessarily what I would call an active participatory fan base. Mm -hmm. Um, And we do work with an artist, a relatively new artist, who actually has really phenomenal streaming numbers but doesn't really have much of a touring presence. Um, and it's much harder. It's it's very difficult for me to really make a, a meaningful impact in that uh, artist's career because I don't really have the ability to connect those streams with marketing and other initiatives that normally I would, um, you know, put forth for artists. So most of the artists that we work with are touring based and touring is a, is a you know, majorly important component, both financially and from a marketing capability standpoint. I don't know if that totally answers the question. Rashawn,
1: that really does answer the question. And it's extremely interesting because there's a lot of conversation in the music industry about driving people towards streams. And there's a, you know, there's conversations from traditional artists that have been around pre-streaming who are frustrated that they're driving their audience towards a streaming platform. And thus losing that direct connection to fan, as well as being concerned about what the payout is per, per stream and, 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 and the overall payout as well as a, for a career. Um, so it's really interesting to, to have your perspective. You've been managing artists or your company's been around for 25 plus years. Uh, yeah. to, have, to have your perspective of, of seeing all these different phases and understanding that it's not just about, well, where's the money being driven from? But how are you creating and keeping and maintaining and, and engaging uh, the fans? Um, and the communication with, with fans, which is really interesting to think about with the, with the live side. It's not just a revenue stream that's, that's harder to harder to get right now under a lockdown situation, but it's also uh, creating another barrier to reaching those fans because you can't tour.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that that is the biggest missing element right now as far as re- releasing records. We, we have released a major record during the pandemic. Actually, I think it was March 27th, if I have the date right. Um, we released Vanessa Carlton's new album that we've been working on for the last, you know, almost three years, um, and we decided to keep that date even though things were were obviously absolutely chaotic and crazy at that moment in time, um, mainly because we felt like the, you know, people are going to need art and want art, um, and we thought the album was was sort of timely and and made sense at this moment in time. But we lost this major driver of having a huge uh, national and international tour to um, to use as a marketing vehicle, you know, going into each market, talking to journalists there, meeting with radio stations, uh, meeting fans physically at shows, signing autographs, taking pictures. I mean, all those things are vital to the overall marketing of music. And frankly, it's, you know, as I've mentioned already, I think it is the best way for an artist to control the message and also control their ability to actually reach genuine fans who are truly interested in what they're doing. Um, not that we don't also care about passive fans. They're awesome. But we know that we can't do much more with them. Um, and, you know, so that touring is it's, it's a really huge gaping hole in the overall portfolio of, of an artist's.
1: Viability, I would say. Hey, while we're on the topic, um, uh, a great UK kind of music industry music tech newsletter called Music Ally did an interview with uh, Spotify's Daniel Ack, the CEO, mm-hmm. and this quote: "You can't record music every three or four years and think that's going to be enough." Kind of blew up in the media, yeah. music industry media. I mean, there's like dozens of articles that are quoting it as a, as a, and people criticizing him for saying that. And you literally just said. Your artist just released the record you've been working on for three years. Did you see that quote? Yeah. I'm curious what your reaction is to that. I
0: did see that quote, and I actually am a firm believer in that quote. Um, you know, it's almost like people fighting against uh, change and technological advancement. This is just the reality. It's the evolution of the music business, and it's the evolution driven by technology of the music business. And the reality is that, you know millions and millions and millions of artists around the world, um, can release music constantly. Uh, you know, so there's the barriers to entry to be an artist in air quotes and not in air quotes, Hmm. um, has really, you know, democratized over the last 20 years. So I don't want to say that the channels are clogged, but there's a massive volume of stuff coming out every single week. Um, and I think we as a, as a society and especially the younger generation who are completely digital, digital natives, mm-hmm. um, they're used to on demand and they're used to listening to whatever they want to listen to when they want to listen to it. And so if you're not out there with content somewhat frequently, um, and we've experimented with a variety of different ways to do that. And, and I'm a fan of almost all of the alternate ways of, of releasing music, whether it's one single at a time until you release the full album or releasing, you know, EPs seasonally or, you know, whatever, whatever that methodology is, I do believe that the creation of content needs to happen pretty continuously. And actually that dovetails nicely with the silver lining I was talking about with the pandemic artists are now, you know, taking to the airwaves and by the airwaves, I mean live streaming regularly, constantly. Mm Um, you know, some artists are doing it multiple times a week. They have different types of shows. You know, to me, that is the world that we live in, uh, for better or for worse. We live in a world where constant content creation is a benefit to an artist's overall, um, you know, career trajectory. Then again, I, you know, I'm a manager. I don't control the artist. I work to maximize whatever the artist's goals are and protect them and, and and service them. So that being said, Vanessa is the kind of artist that records an album every few years. Um, she gets these bursts of creativity. She has to sort of release an album and then sort of pull back from it and absorb and obviously market and promote it and then you know figure out the next inspirational uh, moment or inspirational you know whatever that moment of inspiration is going to be to create a new thing. So it doesn't work for everybody, mm. um, but I completely understand where where Daniel's coming from, and I understand from his services standpoint where he's coming from because he sees the data um, and he can analyze you know what's effective and what's not effective. And I'm I'm sure that what he's seeing is artists that are releasing more frequently are more top of mind, and artists that are releasing less frequently, especially. After several years, they, the people that were fans of them three years ago may or may not care anymore. They may have moved on to, to completely other
1: types of music and other experiences. Wow, man! You, there's so much to unpack there. I think in that that last answer, you probably hit. You know, we did these seismic shift trading cards. I don't know if I've told you about this, Rashawn, but <laughs> last year at the conference, we did 18 trading cards, um, and each one's a seismic shift in the music industry. And we handed them out to the conference uh, in LA last October, and people would get a few of the cards, and they had to trade with each other to get the full set. But one of them was <laughs> <Love> music. <laughs> yeah, it was kind of a fun way to just like talk about some of the top level ideas you're talking about that really affect strategy and tactics in, in the music space. But um, one of them was music's in the hands of the masses. Um, one of them is music as an experience. One of them is the gates are broken. Music is competing with everything. I mean, like I could go on. There's many paths to listening. There's more music than ever. These are all seismic shifts that literally touch on what you just said in terms of your reaction to Daniel X's comment. And, you yeah. know, it's it's interesting as, as a manager and an advocate for artists to see both sides, but also to recognize that it's, it's a change in how people are engaging with not just music but all forms of media um, because music's competing with everything. I mean, shoot, not only do you have more music coming out than ever because the barrier to entry, as you mentioned, is, is so much lower and there's so many ways to get your music out there. Um, you also have gaming and you have fitness and you have, um, you know, just so many different little industries exploding uh, mm-hmm. that, that are calling for people's attention. Um, and people are sleeping less and watching Netflix more. So, <laughs> you know, you, yeah, you, it's, it's really tough to, to, to kind of maintain it. So I see what you're saying, like, regardless of what your creative style is, whether it's you got to have those creative bursts over the course of years. Versus, you got to be tweeting all the time or or, or TikTok-ing whatever your latest thought is. Yeah, um, it, it's how do you maintain the the engagement and conversation so people remember you when you do have something good to offer. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. And you know, you mentioned uh, that it's it's very difficult. or Maybe I mentioned
0: that it, it's very difficult to make the connection between the streaming audience and the active audience that uh, may. You know, love a band, and and musicians are sort of railing against pushing people towards streaming because it is difficult to connect those dots. Um, And I do, I do agree with that. I think that you have to, you know, you have to be trying at every um, every turn as an artist to get people to sign email lists and to incentivize people to sign email lists Mm -hmm. because those those are the places where you have control over connection and contact with your fans. Mm -hmm. Um, So for those artists that are out there that are just pushing things to streaming and not trying to figure out ways to get email addresses, um, I think that's a huge mistake. I do think Spotify um, and Apple and and the other platforms that are out there are beginning to develop more robust tools to make connections. Um, But at the end of the day, having someone's email address and being able to direct market to them is the most important thing an artist can do.
1: Yeah, so tell us about what your artists are doing to adapt to the inability to have live audiences, to perform live. It's so important to have those, uh, that, that kind of self, uh, self-fulfillment self um, uh, ability to reach out to fans directly. You talked about how touring has, has always been that connection um, in, your, in in watching your artists' careers, and now you talked about how some of them are really leaning into to live streaming. What are your artists doing? Um, in that world.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it, it is somewhat limited um, as to what can be done because you've you've taken the entire live human element out of it. Um, so you know, at the beginning of the, the pandemic, when everything started in, in mid-March, I think there was a lot of paralysis on everybody's part, but we had this record that had to come out, uh, you know, two weeks later. I think I, I sort of put like March 15th as the date that everything kind of shut down. Um, and we had this record coming out for Vanessa on the 27th. So we were really thrust into a lot of different live streaming scenarios, um, which was great for me because I got to see um, so many different ways that artists can do that, depending on the platform, whether it's, you know, an Instagram live and then saving stuff to IGTV or Facebook live or uh, YouTube or you know Zoom stuff. You know, I, I really got a crash course quite quickly um, about a lot of the different ways that artists can connect, and I took those things that I learned with releasing Vanessa's record, and I tried to, you know, educate the artists that I'm working with, and and some of them um, really took to it more than others. So I'll sort of break it down into a bunch of different sections of what overall the artists have been doing Um, to start with they've all been writing more so they've really taken this time to either write new music or record new music Um, i have one artist that had just finished recording an album when all this went down he has since recorded a completely new companion piece album to that album which is essentially alternative versions of everything on the for lack of a better phrase the source album Um, He then also is almost finished recording a full covers album. So, you know, in the time that we've been dealing with the pandemic, he's essentially written, you know, the next two records that he can release over the next, you know, almost three years. Um, And the plan for that is actually to release it in a more sort of modern uh, Daniel Eck kind of way, where we're Mm going to release seven singles over the course of the next eight or nine months separating them about six or seven weeks apart because that's the recommended spacing for pitching to Spotify. Mm. Um, And then the album itself will come out um, in the summer of next year. And then we'll take that companion record and do something similar with that. So that'll extend that life of that album for another year. I haven't even told the label about the covers album that we have almost completed already. Um, so that's one pillar, right? So I think every artist is doing at least every artist that I'm working with has taken this time to write and record new material. Um, I do work with a decent number of sort of individual artists, not bands. Um, however, the the band that I work with, or one of the bands that I work with um, has been meeting in small groups and doing writing sessions and beginning to plan out how they're gonna record. Um, They're based in in Pittsburgh and the I think they're in a phase four there so they are able to get together in small groups and do stuff. Um, So that's sort of one pillar. a Lot of writing, a lot of recording. Um, The live streaming pillar and all the things that go with sort of the the human element of performance, um, I've really Come to view it as like um, network television or cable television, where you can do a variety of different things, either as an individual in our, uh, individual artist or um, you know sort of a group of artists. Um, so we've created different properties for different uh, different clients of ours. Where one of our clients had at at the height of it four different shows a week where they were utilizing, you know, one was the lead singer doing a show and that was sort of the, the capstone show of the week and that had the most viewership um, and that was on Facebook. Then that same lead singer would do a covers only show but vacillating between Instagram and Facebook. Um, and then the bass player and the guitarist would have their own show that they would do every other week. Um, the guitarist would do one week, the bass player would do another week. And that was a little bit of songwriting uh, conversations and performances mixed with the guitar player has two daughters who sing and perform as well. So he had like almost like a Von Trapp family thing going on with it. Um, and then the guitar player was using a platform called Stationhead, which I think is awesome. Mm-hmm. And that sits on top of Spotify and Apple and allows you to be your own DJ to DJ and curate a music show. And so he was essentially, and he's still doing it, He had his own radio show. He would bring people on and interview them. He would sort of theme it each week, um, and he'd have a playlist that then we would post. um, He would do this on Sunday night, and either Monday or Tuesday we'd post it to social media, and you could listen to the playlist on Spotify. Um, And Vanessa Carlton is also doing that. She has a station head show. So I've really looked at this as a, a way to have a variety of different types of experiences with the artists that we work with, and some have not really embraced the live streaming stuff. They've, they've one of my artists has really done more record like video recordings of him performing songs live and putting those on the air. Um, I think it's been tough because different people have different family situations. Mm-hmm. Uh, the artist that's doing these videos and posting them, as opposed to doing it live, have two young. You know, he has two young kids: one that's uh, sub one year old, and another one that's three or four. So it's very difficult to have a house that's totally quiet to do, say, an hour long stream. Um, so it, it's different strokes for different folks. Um, we did, we did do one um, drive-in theater show which was successful, and I'm trying to do at least one more before the summer's done. Um, it was interesting. It was different. I think the fans really loved it. I know the band loved it because they were finally able to perform live, um, and that was a great experience, and we had 400 cars and sold out this 800-car uh, venue. The state required that we'd have half capacity so that there was spacing adequate spacing between cars and people could get out of their cars because there was adequate spacing.
1: Um, hey, Rashaan, what did that look like? What 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 was the band doing and what were the fans doing in that setting?
0: Yeah. So, it was really interesting because you don't realize just how much space you need for 800 cars and <laughs> even though there were only 400 cars there, we still had the footprint of 800 cars because we had to separate those cars mm-hmm. out. It's a huge space. Um so this particular drive-in had three different screens and we utilized all three screens. We had, we had a video crew come in and film it. So if you're up close and there were VIP, quote unquote, seats, you know, the cars that, that are closer, we upcharged a little bit for like a gold circle, they could really see the band um, on the stage. But if you're in the back, you know, the band is like almost a half a mile away from you. So this, the, the, uh, the video um, performance and the, and the videoing of the performance was really crucial. But it was great. I mean, every report that we got back was really, really positive. Um, logistically, I think it's a bit of a nightmare. But thankfully, <laughs> you know, one of the promoters um, took it on, you know, on themselves to, to deal with all that, so we didn't really have to deal with too much of the logistic elements of it. But um, it was really wonderful. I, I wish it were an easier thing to do because I, I'd like to see more of that, mm-hmm. and I think it's a really obvious way to. You know to perform, especially if you have an audience that, or you have a an artist that can reach an audience that size. It's you know it's not a it's not a cheap proposition. I want to say that each car was it started at a hundred dollars a car, um, and then increased based on the number of people you had in the car. Mm. So it's you know ultimately ends up being about a twenty five dollar ticket, which isn't a fortune. But there certainly were cars that had two people in it, so that's a fifty dollar ticket, right? right? So yeah.
1: um, they should have put some more people in the car.
0: <laughs> yeah, uh, you know we we definitely. Encourage with safety in mind people to um, carpool and share where they were in pods together or, you know, felt comfortable doing yeah. that, families, etc. Um, and then uh, the other th- – the, the last two things I'll mention is that we've essentially re- rethought out the live album. And we are now about to release our second live from the live stream mm-hmm. album. Oh, right. Which are – Live, you know, the live performances that you see on the live stream, recorded um, and mixed down in a rudimentary fashion, um, and then released, um, you know, into into the streaming DSP world, so that people can get it on whatever platform they happen to be on. Um, so we released one of those uh, two weeks ago for our client William Fitzsimmons. Um, and at some point, hopefully this month or early September, we're going to release a best of live of the live stream from our uh, client, The Clarks. Um, so that's you know sort of an interesting reimagining of the live album concept. And I mm-hmm. think that that's something that every artist can do and in my opinion should do because I think it's a marker of time that people will remember because um, they'll know where they were when they watched the live stream for that artist. You know, they'll remember the circumstances of what was going on in their life. And it may have been not the greatest moment, but perhaps that particular live stream was what brought them the joy in this time of difficulty. Um, and then the other thing we did is we we've created merch specific to the live streams. Um, so we created in particular that the cap, that capstone show for the Clarks with the lead singer and, um, which was called uh, The Blacement Show because his last name is Blazy, and the live stream was from his basement. So one of the fans in like the first week said, oh, you're live in The placement." <laughs> and that kind of caught on. And we created a live in The placement t-shirt um, and we sold a thousand units of it. I mean, it was, it was a really massive success. And I think it goes to show you that if you have a direct connection with your audience and your audience cares about you and you're providing them with something that they really love, There are other ways to monetize it. We didn't charge. We have not charged for any live stream that we've done. And I don't say that like as some sort of like badge of honor, like, ah, we didn't charge. We just did not feel like we could figure out the right way to go about doing that. Um, So we raised money for charity. And then we created these merch items um, that we've sold uh, and the live stream albums. And that was sort of the monetization angle. So those are sort of the, the breadth of the different types of things we've been doing. Um, And I think there are some silver linings there. I mean, you know, before the pandemic, if I asked somebody to do a live stream, it was like, you know, I'm twisting their arm. Um, And now I think it's a much better promotional vehicle um, and artists understand the benefit to it. And I do think that radio stations and and other outlets, other marketing and promotion outlets will be more apt to allow that kind of an interface so that perhaps an artist that we might have had to send to Europe to do a promo tour to hit a bunch of radio stations, perhaps we can do that all through live streams, um, which we've done a fair amount of as well um, during the pandemic. But it, it seems like it's opened up avenues that we can use
1: post-pandemic as well. Wow! I mean, the the breadth of what you've just described is how artists are responding from your roster. Um, it's so diverse. There's so many different um, methods there, and it just shows so much creativity in 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 the way that the the format the shape of the format. Um, uh, and it's so interesting to think about because there's so many conversations about, well, my creativity's in my music, I don't really wanna do the marketing or I don't wanna do the, the business side or, or whatever, but there's a lot of creativity. Now, maybe that's the benefit of having a whole roster rather than just talking about one artist's career where there's only so much one person can do. But um, I'm really impressed and it does make me kind of, and, and this is why I wanted to have you on the podcast from, you know, we had you on a panel at the Isolate or Innovate Forum. You and I met on a round table online on a Zoom as well. And I just really am interested in, in how you and your artists are thinking about those those formats and, and being really creative with them and also adapting to what those individual artists can actually do. You talk about some of them have young kids and they can't do certain things. There's certain limitations yeah. placed there, but Dude, from 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 cable TV show style live streams to drive-in theaters, that's quite quite a variety.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, necessity is the mother of invention, and I think that 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 is so true in this situation where all of a sudden we're like, what do we do, and how do we do it, and where do we do it? Um, you know, thankfully, there were these outlets um, to do the live streaming. I mean, I think Instagram Live. You know, it's probably less than a year old and you know a lot of these platforms if it was three four five years ago you you wouldn't have it stage it which is which has been around that long um, and has benefited immensely from this um, is an awesome platform but it's built on flash like so there, there's so many things mm-hmm. that like were, we're evolving um and innovating uh in this moment of time and necessity is the mother of invention yeah. and that was that that's really what allowed us to do the things that we did. And frankly, a huge credit to the artists that I work with that, you know, I would throw out some crazy ideas and and they'd go for it. They were like, yeah, let's try it. You know, we don't know if it'll work. We don't know if we're going to like doing it, but let's try it. And I, I think that's a huge credit to them. um, that they were willing to take the leap of faith and learn a lot of technology that they didn't know and understand before. I mean, doing a live stream is not as simple as just turning your phone on and starting to play. Yeah, you can do it that way, but if you want the experience to be better, you really have to get some gear involved. You have to figure out some audio tricks and and some ways to do that. And they really invested the time and effort into, into doing that. So hats off to them.
1: You know, this this um, this pandemic has really, because of the, the the drying up of the live revenue stream, um, it's really put a focus back onto the. Um kind of the relationship between artists and streaming services, not live streaming, just audio streaming Mm -hmm. and the move, the move to digital has been tough for a lot of artists pre pandemic. And and though the record industry seems to have finally returned to being a profitable business, we still hear from many artists that they're not seeing enough revenue to make a living. I'm curious, and we can go brief on this because we've got some other questions we want to get to what's, what's your take on music streaming services like Spotify, Apple music, Amazon prime, and so forth. You already mentioned your th- thoughts on the timing of frequency of releases and how to engage with fans, but are these services being unfair to artists or does it have to do with the deals with labels or is there too much competition and and these artists are misdirecting their um, criticism? What, what's what's your take on, on this relationship, this financial relationship between music streaming services and artists? The answer I think is yes to everything you just said. <laughs> um, he, it's all yes, of those there's things. Yes, too many artists.
0: Yeah, yes, there's too many artists. Yes, the deals with record companies are absolutely horrible. Yes, the the streaming companies are not paying out enough to the artists. Um, so I think it's all of those things. But again, it's it's like you know fighting change. Uh, technology is, is evolution, and the business is evolving to streaming um, and the streaming platforms that are there. I don't know if there'll be multiple platforms in the long in the long run, um, but there certainly are now. And I think it's pretty common knowledge also that, uh, and I'll, we'll use Spotify as the example because we were talking about it before, they're paying out about 70% of every dollar that comes in to artists. Now, most of those artists are being paid through the record label. So it's actually the record label that's getting paid, right? So... If most of the artists are on record labels and it's the record label that's getting paid then yes you have to look at the deal that you have with your record label which we all know is a horrible deal like even the best artists the most successful artists their record the record label deals are not good deals and I'm not saying that that should fundamentally change because there's <laughs> a there's a whole value proposition there and an economic model that's that's pretty well understood but it's still an absolutely horrible deal so when you talk about building a company, when you already know that the minimum you're going to have to pay out is 70% and your margin is you know approximately 30%, give or take, um, it's pretty hard to build a viable, globally dominant company with 30% margins or, or even shrinking from there because there are instances where uh, as more and more artists and more and more people join these services more and more money gets paid out and so the economic model can be difficult to sustain so you know i I don't have the answer i don't know what the right right balance is but i do know title pays out a lot more than the other services do but i also know that title is you know a minuscule fraction of market share of these other companies so i'm not sure that that model is really effective and i don't think it's because people don't like title. I just they don't have the the capability to to spend money on marketing and, and getting these uh, additional listeners. So perhaps that's the reason why they're not bigger. They're mm-hmm. they're paying out too much money. Hmm. Um, Spotify paying out seventy percent. That's again that's a healthy amount of money going out the door to artists. Um, do I feel like the artists that I work with that are not on record labels that are getting direct payments? Um, are getting compensated adequately? Not really. I'd love to see more money going to the artists. But I also understand from a business owner and technology person who exists in in the world of technology that you can't really build a business with margins that thin. So I do think that there is a massive amount of music out there. And the more music that there is, the more difficult for the quality music to find an audience. I also think there's a massive gulf between massive artists and the rest of the world um statistically most of the plays on streaming services uh go to massive artists and that's just kind of the way it is we thought that digital would be different and it would be more of a long tail so that artists there that were not massive would not necessarily get a a huge boost right at the the release date but over time the album would find an audience and it would grow and grow and grow and that's not really the case in, in most instances so i think that there are a a lot of different things at play here um, and it, some of it goes beyond just the streaming services but I do think that there is a difficulty in in greater payouts from the streaming services or, or greater percentage of revenue going out to artists and labels from the streaming services because I don't think that's a viable business model I do think streaming is the future is the present and going to be the future I don't know what comes after streaming I, I can't imagine that there is much that comes after streaming. Hmm. Um, and so despite all of these things, and we control a fair number of masters for the clients that we represent. So uh, for us, I can see the you know the streaming numbers. Um, and, and the bottom line is like we drive people to streaming because that's where the people are and that's where the people are going to be. Um, so we want to make sure that we understand how to most effectively communicate and motivate people to... Listen to things on the streaming platforms. Interact with the streaming platforms. Help us to address the algorithmic nature of the streaming platforms. Uh, but at the end of the day, this is this is the world we live in. Um, it is a, a you know evolution is a real thing, and evolution also occurs in business and technology is spurring evolution at the moment and. You know, streaming services are here to stay, so I don't know that it's worth it to complain, per se. We should always push for better.
1: Yeah. Okay, great. Really appreciate the context there. You know, speaking of technology, let's talk about your other business, 10X Management. What is it, and why, and how did you start it?
0: Yeah, so um, we started Brickwall Management, which is our artist management company, in 1995, and the internet was already a thing at that point, and it just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So we were hiring tech freelancers to build websites for the clients we worked with. Um, when the iPhone came out and the App Store came, came to life, we partnered with uh, a dev shop to build uh, apps for the entertainment world to basically release you know, like deluxe albums through an app ecosystem where you could bundle all these different elements together and sort of add value like video and lyrics and karaoke functionality, all that kind of stuff. And we just kept bumping into the same kind of problems over and over again. And at the time, we didn't think we were necessarily going to be part of the solution until about 2010 when uh, people started to refer to tech talent as rock stars. And I think for us, it was sort of a light bulb moment. We're like, hmm, we deal with rock stars already. Perhaps this vertical would have the same kind of need for representation that we've seen in entertainment and sports for, you know, several decades now. Um, And so we set out to do that in 2011. And by 2012, we had sort of proven the concept to be effective. We started 10X Management. And I would essentially say what we did is we brought the concept of, you know, like CAA or William Morris Endeavor, That type of representation merged with uh, almost um, producer management where, you know, a producer manager helps to find uh, artists for a producer to work with um, or sometimes the artist and or label comes to them and they help negotiate the terms of that relationship uh, and then once all that's done, their, their client, the producer goes off and produces the record and the manager functions more as somebody who helps to ensure that the, the process and the project runs on schedule, um, not project managing, but just problem managing hmm. um, any issues. And so that's essentially what we did. We, we created the first of its kind tech talent agency, um, which melded management elements with agency elements um, with the goal of taking all the business elements off of the table for the clients we work with, the, the tech talent, so that they could focus on what they do best. And on the company side, companies had a difficult time identifying, vetting, and figuring out who would make sense for a given projects. And we took that problem off of their plate as well. So we became like a personal shopper for companies to find the right kind of talent, um, and, and there's so many parallels to the music business and, and artists in general. Um, I think tech talent is very similar. Uh, it's a very similar sort of mental makeup to an artist. I'd say the main difference is... Um, that the work that they do is much more private. So, you know, an artist for years growing up is told by their parents, their teachers, uh, you know, friends and family, just how brilliant they are, how amazing they are. And, you know, so they grow up thinking I'm amazing. I'm this amazing, you know, human being, and I deserve X, Y, and Z. And I think that creates uh, a lot of the interesting personality types that we've seen over the years Mm -hmm. in music. (laughs) Um, the adulation and the, you know, the drive for me, 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 but in, in tech, most of the stuff has been private, uh, you know, coding late into the night. If anything, parents are probably like, you know, Johnny and Jane, please get out more, like go play outside, you know, stop playing on the computer. Um, and so I think that there's a different ego proposition there, but the mental makeup and the the, the interests are all the same. Almost every uh, techie that we represent at 10X Management either is a musician or is a hobbyist musician. Uh, some of them have their own record labels or their DJs hmm. um, you know so there's there's definitely a lot of similarity but that's that's essentially what we did and
1: we've been running 10x management now since essentially 2011 and you have a book coming out game changers that's kind of based in both of these practices or this merged practice of managing artists and and producers and songwriters on the one hand and then managing this tech talent on the other Tell us a little bit about the book and what can our listeners maybe learn from from uh, some yeah. of the things you've come up with there? So
0: the book is called Game Changer, How to Be 10X in the Talent Economy, and it comes out on September 22nd. I just had to get that plug in. Thank you very much. No problem. <laughs> um, and it's available for pre-order right now. Um, and so let me just first say that the the concept of 10X is, is really this idea of somebody who is... Equally capable in the IQ department, so the intelligent quotient, and the EQ department, the emotional quotient, which is really the, the, the secret sauce to being a 10Xer. Um, so it's this idea of somebody who is uh, exceptionally talented both at concepting and, and uh, iterating in an elegant way, as well as explaining and communicating what it is they're doing. Um, and I think that this is something that can be applied to any vertical. In the book, we use technology um, and music sort of as the backdrop for obvious reasons because that's where our experience lies. But this is something that can really be um, attributed to any vertical, any kind of business, any kind of individual. Um, and we sort of split the book into two, two parts. One part is about what companies, uh, uh, any kind of company can do to become more hospitable to 10x type talent because we're entering a period of time and this is a little bit off topic but AI and machine learning and automation are displacing tons of jobs and are going to displace massive swaths of jobs and we're gonna enter a period of time where sort of the knowledge worker people with this 10x level capability are really going to be running the the growth and development of companies moving forward because so many of the repetitive tasks will be handled by automation. Um, So this is really about preparing companies preparing themselves for this knowledge economy or the talent economy. Um, And for the companies, we talk about, you know, what you need to do to be more hospitable to 10x level talent, how you can attract them uh, how you can hire them, how you can manage them, because if you can't do those things and you aren't hospitable to this kind of talent, you're going to lose a massive competitive advantage because these types of people, they are the rock stars. They are the you know Tom Cruise's in acting or Bruce Springsteen in music. Um, you know, they're the people that can make and bring seismic change to an organization. So everybody needs to be aware of what it takes to manage that, attract and manage that kind of talent. And then the other half of the book is really about what individuals can do to push down the 10X spectrum towards 10X-ness. Um, so it's a little bit of, you know, self-improvement, but re- really with some, some um, practical uh, prescriptive paths that people can follow. Um, and it's the same thing for, for businesses. It's, it's about what people need to do, what organizations need to do to work with and manage 10 extras. And there's a lot of really cool interviews with people in the music business there. People like John Landau and Barbara Carr who manage Bruce Springsteen, um, Ken Levitan and James Diener from Vector who manage any number of artists. Um, Elvis Duran, who is a morning show radio personality, uh, for the z- Z100 z New York City morning show, as well as iHeart morning show programs. Um, and my client, Vanessa Carlton's in it as well. So I think it's, it's, it's a broadly accessible book. It's not a music industry book, and it's not a not music industry book. Um, and it's been really interesting to write it. And it's e- equally interesting to try and put it out in the middle of a pandemic. But you know what? People need to read and people are interested. Hmm. Um, and we also talk a lot about remote work, which before, we, before the pandemic, you know, was something we had to try and convince people that remote work was a positive thing and to be prepared for it and companies need to be willing to allow it. Um, now, obviously, that is the mode of work that's being done by most companies. So um, it's also a
1: timely book, I think. Well, that's really cool. I'm looking forward to checking it out. And Rashawn, apparently you and I could talk for hours and hours. <laughs> but <laughs> if anyone's still commuting, their drive's probably just about up. <laughs> this has been tons of fun to talk with you, Rashawn. Thanks so much for coming in. Uh, we'll get you more involved with some other music tectonic stuff down the road. Um, but but, Love it. but congrats with all your success, both on the artist side and, and the tech management side. Um, super innovative. Love how generous you were with your thoughts today.
0: Well, I, I truly appreciate you having me on. And the, the last little thing I just want to say, if anybody's interested in taking a quiz to see where they rank on the 10X scale, um, they can do so at gamechangerthebook.com. Um, there's a quiz there that, that is pretty cool and we'll give you some insights into what people need to do in order to become
1: more 10X-like. Very cool. We will post that link in the Music Tectonics app as well. Thanks for joining me, Rashawn. Thanks for having me. Really love the conversation. Likewise. And thank you for joining the podcast. Like I said, come to the Music Tectonics app. It's available in iOS and Android. Um, and uh, we post news articles there. We have AMA, Ask Me Anythings. So we've got hundreds of music tech startups, record labels, managers, innovators, anyone that's working in music tech, that's the place to be. It also has a browser version. If you don't have a smartphone, App.musictectonics.com. And also check out musictectonics.com to find out about our just announced online Conference October 27th to 28th, uh, 2020. We're doing some great things there to uh, create a very interactive, fun way to get business done. We've got some great thought leadership coming in there. As I mentioned, Scott Cohen from Warner Music Group will be speaking, Sherry Hu from Water and Music, and uh, John Vlasopoulos from Roblox. Um, He's the global head of music. Roblox is an incredible gaming platform that tons of kids, millions of kids, are using. We've got investors from Panache Ventures. Lean Square. We're going to be talking about all sorts of interesting stuff in innovation and music tech. Thanks for listening. Check out musictectonics.com. We'll be back with more episodes soon.
0: You're listening to Music Tectonics.